Hello, and welcome to this episode of Every Current. I'm your host, Bill Florence, and today I'm joined by two very distinguished guests, John Beislein and Jesse Jenkins, who are here to discuss the energy impacts from one of the most significant pieces of federal legislation passed in decades, the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA. John, let's begin with you. Could you just provide a quick overview and an introduction of yourself, please? Sure. Uh, I'm John Beislein. I'm with EPRI's Energy Systems and Climate Analysis Group. I'm a program manager and lead our energy, environmental, and climate policy analysis research. Also one of our uh, lead developers of our Regen model, uh, which we use to investigate energy systems uh, planning and policy uh, questions, uh, including looking at the impacts of the Inflation Reduction Act. Jesse, uh, would you introduce yourself, please? Uh, hey, everyone. I'm Jesse Jenkins. I'm an assistant professor at Princeton University, where I have a joint appointment at our Anlinger Center for Energy and the Environment and the Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering Department. And I run a group called the Zero Lab that specializes in building macroscale energy system models. So the kinds of tools that John was just talking about to model the evolution of energy systems, uh, and the Im- impact of novel technologies and uh, provide guidance on uh, for innovators and investors and technology developers today about how they can improve the chances of having significant impact for those technologies over time uh, and evaluation of policy and planning decisions so that we can help provide decision support that can accelerate the energy transition. That sounds fascinating. Um, um, let's jump right into this. You know, most people may be familiar with the Inflation Reduction Act or IRA, but let's just for those maybe who need a little refresher, can we just like do a little high level level introduction uh, to to the act and maybe specifically focus on some of the um, power sector focused elements of the IRA? Sure. Um, yeah, you can think of uh, the IRA as an all-you-can-eat buffet of decarbonization incentives. It gives several tax credits for clean energy deployment, uh, ones for electrification, uh, methane reductions, uh, promoting domestic supply chains, uh, as well as addressing environmental uh, justice, among other sort of non-energy uh, and climate provisions. But our analysis and others suggest that the tax credits for zero emitting electricity generation for things like uh, wind, solar, and others, um, those are large potential uh, drivers of emissions reductions uh, f- from IRA. Those extend existing credits uh, to any zero carbon uh, resource and give the flexibility for uh, project developers to choose across a, a couple different options that, that best fits um, th- their particular needs. I think one unique feature there is that those credits uh, stay in place until the power sector uh, reaches 25% of its 2022 uh, levels. Uh, There's also consumer facing credits as well uh, that are designed uh, to encourage the deployment of things like electric vehicles, uh, heat pumps and other end use uh, technologies. Jesse, what can you add to that? Yeah, I would just say the way I typically describe it to people um, is it's putting clean energy on sale for Americans, right? We're all Come, you know, familiar with when you get a you know discount on you know things at the grocery store or at Amazon or wherever else. Uh, that's effectively what the Inflation Reduction Act is trying to do. It's using the f- you know purse strings of the federal government through a series of tax credits, grants, rebates, loan guarantees, and you know other financial incentives to put Uncle Sam's thumb on the scale, you know, on the clean side of the ledger and and make adoption of all those clean energy technologies cheaper and easier. And the goal is basically to make it a better financial decision for households or businesses or utilities or others 
to transition towards lower carbon technologies um, rather than you know have to do it out of the goodness of your heart. Um, we're trying to kind of shift the financial calculus for everyone, and and that's really the kind of impact that it's having across the board, and you know to varying degrees and varying uh, incentive levels in in each of the sectors. And it really, in my view, puts for the first time the full financial might of the federal government behind the clean energy transition. Right, it's really lined up providing a strong tailwind uh, across all sectors in a way that we really have never had before. Now, late last year, the two of you collaborated with a number of other scientists on a study that was published in Science Magazine called Emissions and Energy Impacts of the Inflation Reduction Act. Can you describe the article, um, John, and particularly maybe why energy and climate modeling was such an important component of that study and what that impact that the impact of that on potential emissions and energy system impacts? Sure thing. Uh, IRA is uh, pretty complex and covers such a, a wide breadth uh, of the energy system uh, that makes the sort of modeling and analysis uh, that Jesse and I alluded to earlier really important for understanding its potential impacts. Because even though it sets up these incentives, uh, actual uptake depends on a, a host of factors, whether it's consumer uptake. Uh, the relative costs of technologies, uh, interactions with other uh, local uh, state and, and federal policies. And so after IRA was passed, we formed this IRA modeling collaborative, uh, both to help to uh, advance the, the modeling and data needs uh, from the, the modeling community, uh, but also to bring together uh, modelers from about 17 different organizations, universities, uh, consultants, academia, uh, nonprofits, um, and I guess my experience has been that in the past, whenever a new policy is proposed or enacted, uh, there's a flurry of studies that are released and decision makers really want to understand um, where studies agree, uh, where they disagree and, and why. And so with that background, uh, we brought this group together to help to uh, compare um, on an apples to apples basis uh, emissions and energy system impacts of, of IRA. Um, and what resulted from that were um, with the, the science paper. Jesse, what can you add to that? Yeah, I think that's a good description of why this kind of modeling is so important. You know, the Inflation Reduction Act is not one policy intervention, it's dozens. And it's really hard to understand, you know, a priori, how do all those different interventions across the energy system interact with each other? You know, for example, there's incentives for electric vehicles on and heat pumps on the one hand, right? That encourages increased electricity consumption that displaces natural gas and petroleum use or you know gasoline use. But the full impact of that depends on what's happening in the electricity sector as well, right? And the cost of electricity and the relative you know, benefits of, of adopting an EV versus an internal combustion car depend on what's happening in the electricity sector and how affordable electricity is and all these sorts of interactions. And there's just you know, countless interactions across the energy economy like that that you need modeling tools to help us understand. And it doesn't to say our models are perfect at predicting what the future is going to look like. If it was, I think John and I would be off, you know, making billions of dollars predicting the future. Uh, but what it does do is help us kind of create internally consistent ways to represent these complex systems and, you know, start turning knobs and see what happens if I move something over here to the other sides of the system. And they're really helpful as decision support tools to get a sense of where, uh, you know, the aggregate impact of these policies is going to land us and where they might fall short. Um, where are the greatest emissions reductions likely to come from? How might that impact the cost of energy for households or businesses? These things that people really care about. Um, I think of it a little bit like the role that the Congressional Budget Office plays as federal policy is being debated when, you know, you have all these different measures all added up in one bill, you know, 
senators and congressmen and their representatives want to know how much is this all going to cost the American people or how much is it going to raise in terms of revenue from these different tax provisions? And the, you know, the folks at the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office use a variety of different modeling tools and forecasting tools to try to give people an aggregate picture of what the budgetary impact of these laws is. And here we have a set of energy and environmental goals and economic transformation goals. And what our models can do is help us understand similarly what the aggregate impact is on our energy system and on our environmental outcomes like air pollution and, and environmental justice and, you know, the cost of electricity. I'm just curious because, because again, I'm not a, uh, not an expert, but can you, I mean, s give a simple uh, sort of explanation of what modeling is? It's looking beautiful in front of the camera. No, not that kind of modeling. Um, <laughs> yeah, so these are basically mathematical representations of the most important, I would say, constraints on how the engineering and physics of our power systems and our energy systems work and the kind of uh, economic incentives or balances that markets deliver. So, you know, supply has to equal demand. You can't just have, you know, goods magically appear or magically disappear, right? We have to have certain balances in the economy. You know, physics has to be balanced. Electricity, you know, production has to go somewhere, right? Um, and so we can basically create mathematical representations, you know, simplifications, but representations of those kinds of interactions of both technology and engineering and physics, but also economics and policy incentives and constraints. Um, and use those to represent how energy systems behave um, at a large scale. Uh, and, and those are handy because once you've built one like that, I can say, well, what happens if I, say, make electric vehicles $7,500 cheaper or, um, you know, give a $28 per megawatt hour production tax credit to wind and solar farms, which, you know, are the types of provisions that we see uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act. And yeah, I would add to that, that I think one benefit of a multi-model study uh, like ours is that there's so many inherent uncertainties about those physical systems and the way that they'll evolve, the social systems that are embedded within those. I think you can uh, view multi-model studies like ours sort of like uh, hurricane tracks, uh, which show a range of, of pathways that a storm uh, might, might take. And likewise, model intercomparisons give different possibilities for those emissions outcomes, those energy system outcomes. And just like you shouldn't prepare uh, for a hurricane by ignoring um, many trajectories and just focusing on, on one, uh, it's valuable for decarbonization uh, planning to consider a range of, of different outcomes as well. Uh, again, because there's typically more uncertainty about those social systems uh, compared to physical ones. I think that's a really good point, John. And the way we, I describe that to my students is sort of structural uncertainty in these models, which is basically, you know, you have a representation of the world in this model, but they're all abstractions. And so there are different ways that you could create that abstraction. And John's model might look a little bit different from my model, which looks a little bit different from another model. And so that's sort of at the core kind of mathematics of how we represent the sort of physics of the world and the economics. But when it comes to modeling policy, in particular in this case of the Inflation Reduction Act, there's also a little bit of an element of professional judgment that each of the modeling teams has to make in order to translate a piece of legislation into an implementation in our model. And sometimes that's very straightforward, right? Like the law just says, all right, this technology gets this much cheaper or this much more expensive or something like that. But a lot of times it, it's a lot more subtle than that. We have to think about, okay, well, I, I've made EVs $7,500 cheaper, but what does it actually do to consumer adoption, right? And how do I represent that in my model? You know, consumers are not perfect, rational, you know, uh, you know, uh, cost minimizing agents the way that maybe some economists might think. Like, there's all kinds of other considerations and cost is not the only thing we care about in our vehicles. Right? There's a whole basket of attributes that we care about uh, when we're thinking about what to buy. 
Um, and so you can't just sort of place that economic incentive in and say, that's all I need to represent. Like there's a bunch of complicated things there. And I think each of our modeling groups approach that in slightly different ways. And so again, having a comparison, not just of different models of the energy system, but also different modeling teams, judgments and implementations of how to translate from this complicated several thousand you know, page long piece of legislation into a particular modeling scenario to represent that is, is also really valuable. John, did you look at how maybe power sector investments may change um, uh, with because of this bill or particularly maybe with the investment in and deployment of emerging technologies? And, and then two, wondering about maybe looking at for us, for consumers, I mean, how is this going to or how did, uh, did your model show how this could impact uh, household energy bills? Yeah, excellent questions. And I would say that despite the differences in the models, I think one uh, theme uh, across the 11 models that participated in the study is that IRA um, may be a, a really large um, uh, influence on power system investments and on uh, emissions uh, over time. And so uh, one of the things we see IRA doing is amplifying this trend we've seen in recent years of increasing wind, solar, and energy storage uh, deployment. I think across the models, uh, we see something like uh, two to four times increase uh, relative to a case uh, without uh, IRA incentives. And that's much larger um, than even historically the single largest uh, wind and solar deployment years. That's almost each and every year on average uh, between now and, and 2035. There are some differences across models in how quickly um, you might see some of those uh, changes. And that reflects the fact that many of these near-term bottlenecks um, whether that's you know ramping up supply chains or navigating the interconnection queue process, um, or even thinking about financing and interest rates, um, there is you know differences across mo models um, in terms of how quickly uh, th those dynamics uh, might might change. Um, but in addition to you know wind, solar, and storage deployment, um, we also see IRA impacting um, existing nuclear. Uh, there are credits for keeping those um, units online. Uh, so we see more um, nuclear over time is existing. Um, but we also see uh, some uh, CCS addition for uh, coal and gas plants. Uh, there, there's a lot more um, variation across models, given the uncertainties about ramping up those emerging technologies. Uh, but I would say that that's something that um, you know, many of the models that are participating in the study uh, saw. And CCS is carbon capture. That's right, carbon capture and, and storage. Uh, and that can be retrofits of existing plants, or it could be uh, new new plants uh, with, with CCS. Uh, but there's, um, you know, these incentives within IRA are not just for the power sector. There's also uh, carbon capture and storage incentives uh, that could apply for direct air capture, basically pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere, um, as well as uh, carbon capture for industry and for fuels. Uh, we do see some models uh, that have uh, that deploy CCS uh, for, for those uh, non-power applications. Yeah, I think it's fair to say, John, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, that across all the models, the bulk of the emissions reductions that we expect to see over the next decade or so, kind of the first decade of impact from the law, come from accelerating a couple of trends that are sort of already underway, but get supercharged by the law. And that's the growth of wind and solar power, which also accelerates the retirement and reduction of coal-fired generation in the power sector and the growth of electric vehicles, which help us reduce the uh, reliance on, on petroleum-based um, uh, transportation fuels. Uh, and of course, the cleaner the grid mix gets, the more 
beneficial that transition to EVs also is from an emissions perspective. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And the majority of emissions reductions, at least through 2030, uh, seem to come from the power sector across the models. Uh, I think the specific numbers are something between 40 to 80 percent uh, of reductions come from the power sector. Uh, but as you get further out in time, uh, you increasingly have contributions from these other sectors as well. Um, and as you mentioned, Jesse, uh, transport um, is, is a big one, both in terms of current emissions uh, and in uh, the potential for, for mitigation moving forward. Um, many of the models suggest that by 2030, 2035, uh, you have over half of all new vehicles uh, sold uh, are cars with a plug. Uh, but it's not just uh, passenger vehicles. It's also uh, commercial vans and uh, trucks and buses, uh, but there are also incentives through, through IRA. And again, that's kind of amplifying, you know, this trend uh, that we're already seeing. I think something like almost 10% of new vehicles last year, uh, passenger vehicles, were, were um, EVs of some sort. Um, so, yeah, IRA is basically um, supercharging these existing trends. Let me just ask, I mean, because, you know, the IRA is so far, so far reaching in, in, in so many different ways. But what about from sort of a uh, from both a policy-related standpoint and then a market-related standpoint, what are maybe some either changes or some some things that we'll be seeing or how in the future um, in those two areas and how IRA impacts those two areas? Yeah, so IRA itself um, can can change trajectories from the policy and market side, but also developments there independent um, of IRA may change um, how impactful um, IRA is over time. I think one example on the policy front. Um, our state uh, policies like renewable portfolio standards um, or at the federal level, uh, thinking of, of different regulations. Um, one in particular that we modeled recently in a white paper was looking at EPA's proposed uh, power plant rules. Uh, and those were proposed last year, um, likely going to be finalized sometime this year. Um, but those rules are, are based in part on the application of technologies uh, like car carbon capture and hydrogen uh, which are both uh, subsidized uh, through IRA. And so our analysis suggests that um, the impact of the, those rules you know, depends on the costs of those technologies moving forward, uh, what you assume about fuel prices, whether gas prices are low or high. Um, and those are, are pretty important uncertainties when you're thinking about IRA and sort of general trajectory of uh, especially the power sector, but also broader energy systems. Yeah, I think that potential to spur additional state level action is a really important dynamic in addition to the ability to give EPA and DOE and other you know regulatory agencies a bit more fortitude to enact maybe a little more stringent regulations than they would otherwise since it, you know IRA basically subsidizes the cost of compliance. We've also seen a whole number of states uh, since the passage of the IRA uh, redouble their commitments to electric vehicle transitions in both you know light duty vehicles and also commercial vehicles um, following California's lead in the advanced clean cars and advanced clean trucks rules. Um, I think there's now uh, something like 14 or 15 states that are following in that direction, and it represents uh, over a third of the light duty vehicle market in the United States. So, you know, that's been a bit major accelerant. It's a lot easier for a state like New Jersey, where I'm from, to commit to that goal if we know that, you know, the federal government's picking up part of the tab for New Jersey you know, uh, auto buyers, right? Uh, and the same is true for these renewable portfolio standards or clean electricity standards with more and more states across the country committing to transition to 100% carbon-free electricity by a certain date forward. 
Um, in New Jersey, we, we haven't yet enacted this in statute, but the governor, Governor Murphy, um, had an executive order in, in 20, I think, 18 or 19 before the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act that set the goal for the state to get to 100% carbon-free electricity by 2050. Uh, my group, the Zero Lab at Princeton, did a study after the Inflation Reduction Act passed that found that we could likely hit that goal by 2035 rather than 2050, while paying the, the same or likely less than we do today for bulk electricity supply costs, thanks to the fact that the Inflation Reduction Act, again, is going to lower the cost of all of these clean energy technologies for New Jersey electricity customers. And after our study was released, the governor accelerated his executive order last year to, to 100% clean electricity by 2035. And there's legislation in the state legislature here in New Jersey to enact that goal in statute. And so that's just one of many examples, Michigan, Minnesota, others around the country have all um, have been increasing their ambition uh, because basically whatever level of action made political and economic sense prior to the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, now the fact that Uncle Sam is picking up 30% or 50% of the tab means that states can go further and faster. And that is really important because we haven't talked about this yet. Despite the accelerated emissions reductions that the Inflation Reduction Act delivers, um, we're not on track yet to meet our uh, national climate goals. So these state commitments, these follow-on regulatory actions are all really important. And the fact that the IRA makes clean energy actions cheaper makes it much more likely that we're going to see those actions going forward. And that's not something reflected in our, any of our modeling. We're not trying to predict those follow-on effects in the modeling presented in this paper and, and other works. We're just trying to say what happens under current policy. Um, and so I'm optimistic that further policy actions will help close some of those gaps and, and make additional progress. I just can't tell you how really um, um, interesting you've made what I would assume might have been a really difficult topic for a lot of our, our listeners. So I really appreciate uh, John and Jesse, both of you for coming on today. If you, for our, our listeners and viewers, if you want to learn more, we'll have some links um, either in the bottom of the uh, the video or on our webpage within in the description for this episode. So again, John and Jesse, thank you again so much for joining us today for this episode of Every Current. Again, I'm your host, Bill Florence, and we'll talk to you soon. If you like today's show, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast and feel free to share the podcast with your colleagues and friends. For more information about EPRI, please visit our website at www.epri.com. And don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at EPRI News. Together, we are shaping the future of energy.